0: The reading from the Bible is 1 John chapter 1 and can be found on page 1224 of the Bibles in front of you. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father And with his son, Jesus Christ, we write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Um, This evening we've got sort of two parts of things to do. One is we're trying to introduce the whole of these letters of John. He's written three. One's five chapters and one's barely kind of 20 verses, um, as is another one. And they may well be amongst um, the latest written parts of what goes to make up the New Testament. And the other part is simply looking at those four verses we've had uh, read to us. Now, when you start to look at a new book of the Bible, there are some pretty common and obvious questions you want to ask of it. Like, who wrote it? uh, When did they write it? Where was... uh, where was the author when he wrote it? To whom did he write it? And why did he write it? So the author is the Apostle John. He's one of the three closest of the Apostles to Jesus, uh, with Peter and James. And he was with Jesus for three years uh, during his public ministry. And he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. When? Well, we don't know precisely, but any time between 60 and 90 A.D., the letter is actually quoted by an early Christian writer called Polycarp, who we know wrote around around 110 AD, so um, you can get some idea. Where? Well, at that time, John wasn't living in the Galilee, where he grew up and was a fisherman. He was actually living in Ephesus, in western Turkey. That was his base and had been for a long time. To whom? Well, It wasn't to the same people that John's gospel was written to. That was written as what they call an apologia, a kind of um, persuasive tract, if you like, to try and convince people of the evidence that Christ was God on earth and that they might then be persuaded and embrace the Christian faith. But his epistle is written, his letter is written to not the same audience, but people who have already professed the Christian faith and are in the churches of his particular part of the world. And they're written to try and establish them firmly and securely in the Christian faith and life. And he tells us his purpose in writing at various points. You know, if you read these letters, um, like uh, you might do, it's almost as if you have to try and work out what it is the situation that he's addressing, but so we can kind of discern from certain comments he makes what he's particularly emphasizing. He's writing 1.4, we had read to us, that your joy may be full. In 2.1 he says that you will not sin. And they obviously have a problem with that. Or 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know That you have eternal life. So joy, holiness and assurance are three strong themes that he wants to get across in his letter to these Christians. These are uh, the Christian qualities that he wants his readers and hearers to know and experience. It's all positive stuff. But as this old man And he must have been by that stage because you can assume he must have been at least 20 when Jesus called him. So the latest he could have been born is sort of like 10 AD. You know, he's getting on a bit. Might be my age, for example, or even older. So um, the situation as he puts pen to parchment is actually quite urgent for him to address. He's been slow to write. And he uh, may well have been the only apostle left at this particular time, depending on how late it was these letters were written. He was certainly the only apostle who died a natural death. All the others were martyred for their faith. Now the Christian faith is based on eyewitness accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. And it's accounts given by people like John, who were with Jesus for three years solidly, and who witnessed, who saw these events. He stresses that time and again, just in those first four verses we had read to us. And these guys, the apostles, they wrote down what they had seen and heard. But they were scattered throughout the world, were the apostles. I mean, they went as far at this particular time as Rome in the west, India in the east, the kind of Black Sea in the north, and Ethiopia in the south. given that there are only 12 of them, you know, they're pretty kind of dispersed around the world. And so too would their writings have been. You know, there wasn't at that particular time a nice little library of books which goes to make up the New Testament. So one Christian community may have had, for example, Luke's Gospel and a letter from Paul, Another one may have had a letter from Peter and a gospel from Mark. They didn't have an awful lot. It was all oral tradition that it was largely based on. It took a good few years for all their writings to be drawn together to form what we now recognise as the New Testament. And so, the little children, as he calls them, the new Christian converts, were very vulnerable to what... Um, some one writer has called the insidious propaganda of false teachers. And so he tells them that he's writing to counter those who are out to lead them astray. So, in front of you, 2.26 in uh, 1 John, he writes, um, These things have I written to you concerning them that seduce you, the Revised Standard Version has, Or in the NIV that you have, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, seduce you and lead you astray. Or in 3.7, little children, let no man deceive you. The Apostle Paul's warning that grievous wolves um, could be expected has evidently come true amongst the churches that John is linked with. And he describes them by three expressions which draw attention to their diabolical, character, their diabolical or origins, their evil influence, and their false teaching. So he says in 4.1 that they're false prophets. Now, a prophet is a teacher who speaks under the inspiration of a supernatural power, maybe benign, maybe benevolent. And the true prophet is the mouthpiece of the spirit of truth, and the false prophet is the mouthpiece of the spirit of error. And this is why examining the teaching of so-called prophets is called testing the spirits for one to six. So they're false prophets. Secondly, in 2 John 7, they are said to be deceivers because they're leading people astray. And then he says numerous times, 2, 18, 22, 4, 3, 2 John 7, that they're antichrists. Almost the kind of, they are the malign mirror reflection of what the true Christ is. Because the substance of their teaching is to deny deny the divine human person of Jesus Christ. And in each case, they are said to be many of them, many false prophets, many deceivers, many antichrists. It seems they once passed as loyal members of the churches that John either established or ministered to, but they've now seceded to 19, gone out into the world, he writes for one, to spread their pernicious lies. And it seems probable because they'd failed, fortunately, to convert the rest of their congregations to their own error. The loyalty of the true believers had for for overcome them, fortunately. And although they'd fought off these wolves, some of them must have been left wavering in a rather insecure state. And so John needs to write to them to reassure them and to strengthen them. And he especially in this letter emphasises the difference between genuine Christians and the spurious. And he explains how to discern between the two. Now, as we read the letter, not only do we pick up the existence of false teachers, but we also are able to piece together the nature of their rather perverted narrative. We pick it up from... John's direct references to their teaching, which he then contradicts. And we pick it up also from the positive emphases that he is stressing, because he's trying to counteract that false teaching. And it seems that their error, as always, was twofold. It was theological, the knowledge of God, and it was ethical, moral. So the theological error concerned the person of Jesus, and they denied that Jesus was the Christ to 22. Now they didn't disbelieve that Jesus of Nazareth was the, the Messiah of Old Testament expectation, because they're both human. What John's opponents did, denied was that the, was, was not the messiahship, but was the incarnation. That is, the divine coming in fully human form and they denied that jesus was the christ it was equivalent to a denial that he was uh, the son of god so he was distinguished between if you like the human jesus and the divine christ as if you could do that now similarly these false teachers the ones who believe um uh No, sorry, if we look at similarly, he who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's the same meaning as is identical with him who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's what John is stressing. He is stressing that the divine, one of the members of God, the Holy Trinity, perfectly divine, has taken up fully a human form from beginning to end of his human life. And in fact, his body is now in heaven. Whereas these false teachers are trying to divide the two. They are trying to say the divine and the human cannot mix. And I'll explain why they had that view in a minute. So the fact that John felt the need to bolster his readers' confidence in the apostolic teaching that they'd received and the possession of the Holy Spirit with the accompanying joy and assurance of eternal life May most likely also mean that these false teachers had an air of superiority about them because these false teachers were denying the divine Christ had come in the flesh or to what we say in human form or fully human. Now, John asserts that Jesus did show himself in the flesh and that he, John, along with other apostles, had seen him heard him and touched him. Now, we're not told what their ethical error was, but the implication's pretty plain because when, Paul, when John often uses the formula if we say, or he who says, he's actually having a go at the false teachers. So three times he says, if we say, like 1-6, for example, they're a denial either that sin exists in our nature, or our behaviour, or that sin doesn't matter, since it doesn't interfere with our fellowship with God. They're stressing the spiritual, they're not taking the whole person into account. And John's very blunt about this. Those who make such assertions, he says, either lie, one six, deceive themselves, one eight, or make God out to be a liar, one ten. God's self-revelation is that he is ethical. And there can be no fellowship with him without right living. So these people claim to know God, or abide in him, as some of their slogans, it would seem, to be in the light, while they themselves live in darkness, are unloving and unrighteous. And John calls them liars. We could also call them hypocrites. John doesn't rest content with negatives, he positively affirms that God is light and God is love and therefore the darkness of sin and hatred is incompatible with any plausible claim to know God. It's only, he says, if we obey God's commandments and love fellow Christians that we can know God himself. What's more, Jesus Christ appeared to do away with sin, to destroy the works of the devil And therefore, sin and lovelessness are as much at variance with the mission of Christ as they are with the nature of God. So you can't, he says, profess to be a Christian if your behaviour is sinful. It is not possible. And he appeals, as he did, to defend Christian teaching to the fact that he had seen, heard and touched Jesus. So who were these false teachers? Well, there was an awful lot of uh, loads of different kinds of um, takes on life going buzzing around in the first century AD. I mean, where Jesus lived, the reason, one of the reasons why he was actually born in the, the land of Israel is because it was the crossroads of the world between the west and the east and the north and the south, and loads of ideas were flowing around. And um, here are a couple of them. I mean, they're often contradictory, but these people are not interested in having a coherent kind of outlook on life. They're just trying to justify their own way of living. One group were called docetis. Dokin is means to seem in Greek. And these people, they couldn't accept that the divine, which they thought as being kind of good, could possibly mix with the material which they kind of, Would think was evil. And so they would have to say that Jesus only seemed to be. He wasn't actually a human, he's like a ghost, really. Rather like in the Old Testament, you have appearances of the angel of the Lord who seems to be human but isn't. There was another stream of teaching called Gnosticism. Um, Gnosis means knowledge, where we get agnostic from. A is no, and gnosis is knowledge, so an agnostic is actually an ignorant person, they don't have any knowledge, I don't suppose they realise that when they say they are, but that's what it literally means in in the original language. And these people, they too separated the pre-existent divine Christ from the human Jesus. The former was not the latter in their thinking. Their whole thinking is parasitic. They actually latched onto Judaism, Christianity and various other religions. It spread from the East, which is very dualistic between spirit and matter, and it infected that whole part of the world. And their particular tactic, like all kind of groups who want to change an existing groups thinking, is first of all they borrow their terminology so when you first of all start to listen to them you think yeah yeah they're on they're on my wavelength they're using all the christian vocabulary but they mean something completely different and so for those of you for example just as an aside who are perhaps um, you know this time next week you'll be in another town or city across the uk starting life in university you'll be looking for a church to join listen carefully to um, the words, the vocabulary may well be very similar, but listen carefully to work out what they mean by it. Now, for these Gnostics, matter, as I said, was impure and knowledge was the most important thing. But where does that sort of notion um, get us, really? Where does it lead you? Well, it first of all creates an enormous distance between the spiritual divine and the material human, because the spiritual divine can never become the material human. So, of course, God hasn't bridged the gap between him and us in their thinking. It means you have to have a whole hierarchy of eons, they were called, between us and the kind of super-divine. And the closer you get to the divine, the more spiritual they are, and the closer to the earth they become more material. Yeah, I know it's nonsense, but people buy all sorts of nonsense in order to justify their behaviour. And these, um, these Gnostics, for them, the divine spirit Christ could not be in the human form Jesus, because matter was evil. And they saw human beings as being trapped in matter, And uh, they would offer people the knowledge, the secret knowledge. And that would enable you to pass from the material world where you were trapped. And you'd be able to go through into the ultimate kind of spiritual world because you knew the knowledge to get you past all these different eons on your way. So it's salvation by enlightenment. And those enlightened through the initiation ceremony were called the spiritual ones. And that meant that their attitude to what um, was done in the flesh took one of two particular pathways. Pathway one was a very rigorous ascetic life. You beat the body so that it behaves itself. That was not very popular. That's far too rigorous. Pathway two was the opposite, it was very licentious lifestyle. Since matter was evil, you could do what you like in, in, in the material world, so long as you cultivated the inner spiritual life. And of course, that was rather more popular. There are no moral strings attached to that kind of, kind of distorted Christianity. Serinthus was one of these Gnostics, he's mentioned in other parts of the New Testament, He's actually written about in other early Christian literature. He and he knew the Apostle John, they knew each other. In fact, once when they were in a bathhouse, well, when Cerinthus entered the bathhouse, um, John sees him and, cr- and cries out, you know, rush out, this is the enemy of the truth or something. So Cerinthus held that Jesus was not born of the Holy Spirit uh, and Mary, he was born of Mary and Joseph. He was purely human. Fully human, but not divine. But at his baptism, the divine Christ took over the human Jesus, but he departed the human Jesus before the Passion and Crucifixion. So John not surprisingly attacks this by asserting that Jesus Christ, one person, passed through both baptism and death. Now these Corinthians were also known as Nicolaitans, who you can read about in the book of Revelation, and they were noted for their immorality. What you did in the external body, I stress, for them didn't matter. Cultivating the inner life was what was important as far as they were concerned. But John says that the practice of sin is incompatible with any claim to be a Christian. He writes three three. Everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself. Or in 3 9, no one born of God practices sins. So these self proclaimed righteous ones can only show themselves worthy of such a title if they actually do righteousness, he says, 3 7. If they sin, they show that whatever they may claim, they've neither seen nor known God, 3 6. And then the third characteristic are these Gnostics. Thank you for your, your patience. It takes a lot longer to introduce a book than actually explain it, really. But you have to know the context, otherwise you don't, you know, you'll you miss so much as you read it. So the third characteristic of these Gnostics seems to have been their lovelessness. The first characteristic was they, divide, they denied that Jesus was fully divine and fully human. Their second was their immoral behaviour. Their third was that they were loveless. You see, they claimed they thought of themselves as because they possessed the secret knowledge. They they were they saw themselves as some kind of kind of religious aristocracy. They were the enlightened ones. They had the knowledge, and they tended to despise the ordinary run-of-the-mill Christians. In Greek, such uh, ordinary people are called the hoipoloi. In Latin, they're called the plebs or the plebeians. You might recognize that title. John cuts across this rather dangerous outlook by, inv- by really insisting that there aren't two categories of Christians, the enlightened and the unenlightened, for God is light and he continuously reveals himself to all, the apostle John stressed. He says, you all know, and he says that four times, two, 13, 14, 20, and 5.20. And his readers, he says, have all received the same anointing or charisma, he says. And they have received the same message which you heard from the beginning. So if all Christians have received both the word of God and the spirit of God, there's no room for cliques claiming superior illumination. Now that, of course, can lead, if you think you're one of the uh, superior one of the uh, spiritual elite, you can have a rather unloving disposition towards others. And that's what the Gnostics were noted for. We learn that particularly from the writings of around about 100 AD or so. So against this distortion of the perfect divine human nature of Jesus and against The indifference to moral behaviour and against their arrogant lovelessness, John lays his emphasis on three marks of authentic Christianity. One, belief in Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh in human form. Secondly, obedience to the commandments of God. And thirdly, brotherly love. And in future evenings, we'll explore each of those and we'll see how we match up to them. So, Many professing Christians, both in his day, the 1st century, or in the 21st century in our day, can, although they're believers, become uncertain, confused, and lack confidence. To read John's letters is to enter another world altogether, whose marks are assurance, knowledge, confidence, even boldness. And the predominant theme is certainty. It's not arrogant to have certainty if it's solidly based on the eyewitnesses to the divine God who lived on earth in human form for that period of time. The characteristic verbs are to perceive or to know, which between them are used 40 times in such brief letters. And the characteristic noun here is confidence of attitude. And the Christian certainty is twofold. It's objective on the one hand that the Christian religion is true, and it is subjective that he or she who embraces it, who is born of God, possesses eternal life. The objective and the subjective go together. They reinforce one another. Both are explained by John, who takes it for granted that this double assurance is right and healthy in all christians his teaching about these certainties their nature and their grounds on which they're built is something that we today urgently and importantly also need to know so very briefly these four verses that we have before us now it may sound like um the beginning of his gospel in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God but there's one major difference between the epistle and the gospel and there in the gospel the word or the logos the expression of God is a person it's a semi-technical designation for the son of God but here in the epistle it is actually a synonym for the word of the gospel, as it is, for example, in Acts 15, verse uh, 7 or 17, 7, uh, my handwriting. And he's um, telling us that access to one is via the other. And Christ and the apostolic witness to his appearing are woven together in our experience. You know, we cannot know Christ other, ultimately, than through the Christ who is revealed for us and recorded in the Gospels, because if you put that on one side, there's no telling what kind of imagination your head can get into, and you don't know whether that's Christ or not. The only way you can be sure, you can't go direct, you have to go through the revelation, and then you go up, as it were, to God and Christ himself. So... Um, as one commentator writes, the life of God in Christ can only be expressed, uh, can, only, can only be experienced by us because it was once in a particular time and place revealed to others who have told us about it, namely the apostles. So in these first four verses, John gives a big picture of God's purpose from eternity to eternity, from that which was from the beginning, verse one, to the fullness of joy, verse five, experienced by Christian believers, but which will not be fully and finally realized until the end of time. And in between eternity and eternity, between those two things, there are five stages which are discernible in the unfolding of the divine purpose, indicating by various words, beginning, verse 1, appeared, which is twice in verse 2, proclaim in verses 2 and 3, fellowship twice in verse 3, and joy, which in Greek is kara. Did you know your name meant joy, for example? So just to unpack these things briefly, the, the first is the beginning. We have the the, ex, the eternal pre-existence of the Son, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen. The Son pre-existed. He was there before creation, before time and space. And he appeared then on earth 2,000 years ago. And paralleling was from the beginning, verse 1. We have in verse 2, was with the Father expressing the Son's eternal pre-existence. Just as in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and then we had, and the Word was with God. Next is this historical appearing. The Eternal entered time and presented himself to our three higher senses, our hearing, our sight, and our touch. To have heard was not enough. Men had heard The voice of God in the Old Testament. To have seen was more compelling, but to have handled was conclusive proof of Jesus' material reality that the Word was made flesh and lived among us. So, no docetic ghost here, something that seemed to be human but was in reality a phantom. And their audible, visible, and tangible apprehension of that which was from the beginning was only possible to men because, verse 2, the life appeared. We couldn't have seen the one who was eternally with the Father unless he had taken the initiative to deliberately show himself to us in our world in a way in which we could understand the human form. We can only understand what God is like because he was pleased to appear before us. And this emphasis on the historical material appearing was directed, first of all, to people like Sorinthus. But the emphasis is vital to us today. It's vital if we're trying to convince someone who thinks that there's no evidence for the Christian faith there is. So, if you set off and you come across historians or lawyers or natural scientists at university, you get them to examine the New Testament accounts of Jesus, particularly his resurrection. They could well be surprised. It's vital in dealing with um, the slightly clever dick religious studies student types who think that miracles are really just too much to expect anybody to possibly believe. And so they demythologize the accounts of the life of Jesus. And in effect, like the Gnostics, they separate a divine Christ, for which there's then no evidence, to uh, a human Jesus. The former is a myth and made up, and the latter is an interesting bod of history from which we can pick and choose what we choose to um, um, really follow. Now the religious type may be motivated by making it easier for someone to believe, but believe in what? Because it's not then Christianity which they hold to, that a divine Christ, an eternal divine Christ, appeared on earth in human form as Jesus of Nazareth, And the human Jesus and the divine Christ are now in heaven. He had a bodily ascension. Now, the only Jesus that there is is the fully divine and the fully human one. And it's also vital in dealing with the more mystical type who tends to become preoccupied with his or her subjective religious experience to the neglect of God's objective self-revelation in Christ. You see we can't know God directly. We might have religious experiences and there's a quiet version of that which is often associated with mood music and candles. There's a noisy version of it which is associated with rock music and laser beams. But any such non-rational experience has no content, no substance, unless it's informed and inspired by the revelation of God in the historical record. If there's any variance, it's the record that's right, not our experience. Paul calls this intelligent worship or reasonable service in Romans 12. Pious sentimentality is not Christian, it's Gnostic. And then the authoritative proclamation, this historical appearance of the eternal life was shared with others, not kept secretly by the apostles. The revelation was given to a few so that the many might benefit from it. They were to broadcast it throughout the world. They were incredibly effective in doing so. So the appearance to us, verse verse 2, by us he means the apostles, becomes a proclamation to you, by which of course he means us ultimately in verse 3. And John uses uh, two verbs to describe this apostolic announcement, to testify and to proclaim. The ministry of the apostles involved both a testimony and a proclamation. And both words imply they have an authority, but of a different kind. To testify indicates their authority was based on their eyewitness experience of seeing Jesus. The witness testifies to what he himself has personally seen and heard firsthand. And that gives them an authority, because they're one of the few people who have actually seen and heard the events under discussion. But what, has been, uh, but what he has uh, been a witness to, he then bears witness to. In a sense, he proclaims and that he derives his authority from Christ himself. And you get that hint, actually, in verse 5, where he says, heard from him and declared to you. That's kind of emphasising the source, not only of uh, the message, but there's a derived authority from Christ himself. So he's not only appeared to the disciples to qualify them as eyewitnesses, but he gave them an authoritative commission so that they would propagate the gospel, they'd broadcast it. John, like the other apostles, is very conscious of this. They have the credentials and the authority, and he's very bold, even though he's an old man. He's not writing as if he's contributing to philosophical speculation, nor tentative suggestion nor are I making a modest contribution to religious thought. He is quite strong, he's quite even dogmatic in his affirmation that he has experienced God in human form first hand and he's been given the authority to communicate that to everyone. And again, lessons for us today. We need to be clear what we mean by testify or testimony. When we're talking to somebody about the Christian faith, are we sharing our experience or proclaiming the historical record? You see, the way we tend to use the word testimony is to recount our subjective experience. What the apostles mean by testimony is declaring their eyewitness account of what happened in history in Jesus. Now, supplementing that historical record, that evidence, by our own personal story of how we've embraced that historical truth and encountered Christ and been changed by it, is a very good illustration of how it works. How the historical Christ becomes the living Christ in our changed life. But our personal subjective testimony is very different from the Apostles' historic objective testimony. A convert's faith should be based on the Apostles' record, not on my or your experience. Only one of those two options is a sure foundation. And then there is really, I think we'll... uh, Then there is here a communal fellowship. The proclamation was not an end in itself. The purpose... uh, was both immediate and ultimate the immediate purpose was fellowship sharing life but the ultimate is joy the fellowship created by christ with the apostolic band when he was when he lived on earth and was then reinforced at pentecost by them possessing the spirit of christ was not to be limited to them it was to extend to the next generation He says that you also may have fellowship with us, and so on down the generations. The purpose of the proclamation of the gospel was not salvation, that might get your ears to prick up, but fellowship. Yet properly understood, this is actually what salvation means in its widest embrace, because salvation includes reconciliation between us, And God, we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. It means holiness of life. It means inclusion in the church. You with us, John says. This fellowship is the meaning of eternal life, the meaning of salvation. As the Son who is that eternal life was eternally with the Father, verse 2, so he purposes that we should have fellowship with them and with each other. And this statement of the apostolic objective in the proclamation of the Gospel, namely a human fellowship arising spontaneously from a divine fellowship, is a challenge to our evangelism and our church life. We shouldn't shouldn't be content with either an evangelism that doesn't result in the drawing of converts into the church, into the Christian community, Nor should church life be a case of um, really just a superficial camaraderie. Instead, it should be a spiritual fellowship with other believers and with God the Holy Trinity. And then he says that your joy may be complete. Or he could say our joy. People, half the manuscripts say one, half say the other. But our has the advantage in that it could include both. So we'll go for that. What is the secret of fullness of joy? Well, it is fellowship which the proclamation creates. For if the immediate purpose of proclamation was to establish fellowship, the ultimate purpose is to complete joy. So there's a divine order. The gospel, the message is shared. Fellowship results and ultimately there's joy. But it's not perfect joy, this side of heaven, because it's not possible in a world of sin, because perfect fellowship is not possible. So verse 4 here looks beyond this life to the life of heaven. In your, that's God's presence, his fullness of joy, writes one of the songwriters of the Old Testament. It's to this ultimate end that he who was from the beginning appeared in time, that the apostles heard, saw and touched which they have proclaimed to us. The substance of that apostolic proclamation was the historical appearance of the eternal. Its purpose was and is fellowship with one another, which is based on fellowship, sharing of life with the Father and the Son, and that issues in the fullness of joy." which we look forward to at the end of time. Amen.